please note, the Wendigo is a malevolent spirit within the Algonquian cultural tradition, which is still a living system of spiritual belief. When we describe the Wendigo as an urban legend, we endeavor to acknowledge and address the appropriation of the Wendigo in Euro-American and Euro-Canadian culture as a whole. Our intention is to discuss how a concrete part of spiritual practice became a popular scary story. Due to the graphic nature of this urban legend, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes graphic depictions of gore and discussions of institutionalization, genocide, and violence against Native Americans and First Nations peoples. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Some say it begins with hunger, some with unease, a restlessness, a desire to move, to consume. But we know deep down that it begins with ice. Your heart freezes over, slow but steady, as your humanity dies away. You don't know what you have done to invite this evil inside you, Perhaps you've feasted on the flesh of your fellow man, whether in the dreaming world or waking. Perhaps you've given in to the influence of the outsiders, the settlers, the seductive nature of greed and destruction. Whatever the cause, your heart is hardening, your stomach growling. Soon you will cease to be. All that remains will be the hunger. What used to be you will destroy what you love. You will become the story told around the campfire in the dead of winter, when all the doors are barred. The Wendigo. Welcome to Haunted Places, a podcast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, we take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted real places on Earth and share their stories. This episode is part of our Urban Legends Halloween special. Every day for the month of October, we're presenting our spooky spin on an urban legend, then diving into the history of the horror. Like it or not, each terrifying tale contains a grain of truth. You can find episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Haunted Places for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Haunted Places in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Today's episode is part of our series on Halloween, where we delve into the fascinating traditions behind the world's scariest holiday. If you enjoyed this episode of Haunted Places, be sure to check out the rest of the Parcast Presents Halloween feed on Spotify. Today, we explore one of the most complicated legends in American folklore, ripped from Algonquian culture. The Wendigo has made appearances in horror films, television, and video games. They even appear in My Little Pony, Friendship is Magic. But the nature and history of the Wendigo and its accompanying association with mental illness is anything 
but child-friendly. For the subarctic First Nations of Canada, there are some stories that are only for winter. It is taboo to discuss the fearsome spirits of ice and snow without letting the world turn white. Nature herself binding them beneath their frozen lakes and rivers. These ice spirits are a form of Manitou, supernatural entities within the beliefs of the Algonquian people. The Algonquian are an indigenous language and cultural group. Their territory on the northern plains and boreal forest of North America extended as far south as California and east as Virginia. The most famous of Manitou, the Wendigo, is a horrifying result of greed in times of famine and strife. It appears as an emaciated and cannibalistic figure, a walking corpse, decomposing and freezing all at once. And it's hungry, always hungry. The creature would be horrifying enough if it were merely a legend told around a campfire, but many Algonquians have acted on their belief in the Wendigo, appealing to Canadian and American authorities for action and even resorting to murder. Sean Smallman reports one particularly tragic case in his book, Dangerous Spirits, The Wendigo in Myth and History. In 1910, a Cree woman named Marie Boucon was brought to the doors of a convent and hospital in Alberta, Canada. Her relatives had walked her there through isolated woods in the dead of winter, undertaking the perilous journey because the alternative was far more terrifying. Marie, they said, had been transformed into a Wendigo and was slowly losing her battle against her homicidal urges towards her two sons. The Sisters of Providence tried to reassure Marie. She wasn't a monster. She wouldn't need to feed in the night, as she so adamantly insisted. Though Marie did not speak English, the sisters insisted she slowly began to believe them. Marie consumed holy water obsessively, possibly to combat the ice she believed would form around her heart as part of her final transformation. Marie's condition worsened, and by 1913, most of the sisters considered the woman to be psychotic, beset by violent rages and fits of manic laughter. The new bishop in charge of the mission convinced the Canadian authorities to send Marie Boucon to an asylum. Even the police were afraid of her, opting to trick her into boarding a boat to Calgary. Her passage into the white man's world was complete. Her personhood swallowed entirely, as indicated by the heading on the last known record of her, Marie Wittigo. Institutionalization was believed to be the only way to handle someone like Marie Boucon in the early 1900s, but Algonquin tradition offers a different, if more dangerous, treatment. Burnt Stick was certain her mother's cooking was the greatest in the whole world. Sure, she was slightly biased because her mother raised her, but there was nothing quite like rabbit stew on a night when the winter wind whistled through the dark trees. Burnt Stick and her mother lived on the outskirts of their settlement, not by choice, but by necessity. 
Burnt Stick's now-departed father had been a trapper, one of the few men in her tribe to learn the white man's language when they approached, offering guns and blankets in exchange for furs. Their home was the last lit dwelling before the inky blackness of the woods, the source of their livelihood, as well as an ever-present danger. For all her father's careful planning, it was the woods that were his end. He had gone out one morning and never come back, swallowed by the snow and the dark. Burnt Stick did the trapping now, and her mother did the cooking. Rabbit stew and preserved fish, wild onions and squash. It was a meager life, but they got by, finding their moments of happiness where they could. Then winter came, and everything changed. The traps had been bare for weeks. Their supply of preserved meat was dwindling, and the rabbits, Burnt Stick's usual prey, were disappearing. She would have nothing to offer the French trappers when they came to trade. More importantly, they had nothing to eat. Rabbit stew was merely a happy memory. Her mother told her it would be all right, but Burnt Stick had never experienced famine like this before. Their whole village was struggling, and there didn't seem to be anything that could be done aside from waiting. Burnt Stick hated waiting. So she checked the snares every day, setting new ones, going further and further out with each passing day. She was about two hours from home when she first saw the Wendigo. He looked the way he always looked in her mother's stories, standing far off, his pale skin and icy blue eyes barely discernible from the swirling snow. Burnt Stick probably wouldn't have seen him at all if not for the hunger. She could feel it radiating from him, even at a distance. A need, an emptiness that seemed insatiable. She did not think she should run. She was the prey here. The rabbit that dashed was always far easier for her to see and catch. But the Wendigo was moving closer. It approached sniffing the air with gaping black nostrils, caked in frost and blisters. Burnstick realized it had no lips, only a cavernous hole. She turned and started walking in parallel to the Wendigo, trying to slow her heartbeat as her legs moved faster. The beast did not rush. It did not run. It simply followed, persistent, quiet, eternal. She wasn't sure if she should try to lead the creature towards home or away from it. She wanted to protect her mother, but the sight of the monster made her want to curl up in her arms like the child she'd been not so long ago. She was not offered a choice, unfortunately. The incline of the land changed, and the Wendigo began to close on her diagonally threatening to cut her off if she didn't head towards home. Burnt Stick made a beeline for their small cabin as night began to fall. The monster pursued at a distance, never running, only following, passing through the growing snow drifts as if wading through a shallow pond, watching, waiting for something she didn't want to contemplate. Hours passed as she and the Wendigo did their strange dance, 
him approaching, her retreating, as they sighted each other through gaps in the ghostly white trees. She caught a closer glimpse of its face a few times, a corpse frozen in mid-bloat, with sunken eye sockets and cloudy eyes. There was no semblance of humanity left after the body consumed itself from within. The snow swirled and the wind whipped, licking at Burnt Stick's exposed nose. She hadn't wanted to run, afraid that the creature would know she had seen it, but it was so close and she was so tired. The minute she lifted her foot, it ran too. She sprinted through the snowdrifts as best she could, hearing the wind and the creature's breathing getting closer and closer. Her home loomed in the distance, a small curl of smoke wafting up from the chimney. Heat was what she needed. Heat. Her legs screamed in protest. Her snowshoes weren't built for this, and the snowpack was so thick. She didn't dare call out for her mother's help. She didn't want the Wendigo to know she was there. Burnt Stick stomped and stumbled, her trapping supplies dangling behind her, until she finally leapt for the door's handle. Somehow, she made it inside. She quickly barred the door, whispering to her mother that there was a Wendigo outside. If her mother was frightened, Burnt Stick did not see it. She calmly spooned stew into three bowls, then began to straighten up the table, making sure everything was just so. Burnt Stick was about to ask what was happening when they heard something on the roof. Footsteps. They both looked up. The sound paused, then began again, as if listening for movement. Frost crept down the windows of the little cabin in spinning spider webs of cold. Burnt Stick heard a window crack. Still, she held her breath. They heard noises from the chimney. Burnstick looked to her mother, whose face was showing the first signs of concern. But then, her mother shook her head, resolved. She held her finger up to her mouth, warning Burnstick to stay calm. Then, she walked to the door and opened it. Coming up, Burnt Stick and her mother feed their dinner guest. Now back to the story. Burnt Stick and her mother had been starving. The snares had been empty, and there was little they could do but venture further and further outward into the snowy forest, looking for sustenance. She was deep in the woods when a creature began to follow her, a wendigo, with hungry eyes and an emaciated frame. The young woman was forced to run for home, barely making it inside before the monster caught up. Trapped, Burnt Stick tried to fight panic, but her mother was serene. She set the table with three bowls of stew, leaving some of the fat still in the kettle to simmer. Then she opened the cabin door. The Wendigo didn't leap at Burnt Stick's mother. It only stared looking lost and confused, and oh, so very hungry. Suddenly, the fear that had begun to sneak into her mother's face disappeared, replaced with a wide, warm smile. 
Won't you come in, dear grandfather? She offered, holding out her arm to invite the monster into the cabin. Burnt Stick could barely breathe. Her mother nodded to her to sit at the table, practically catatonic from fear. Burnt Stick sat down. The Wendigo shuffled closer. Burnt Stick nearly screamed. What was her mother doing? Couldn't she see that it was a monster? Her mother pulled out a chair for the Wendigo. It sat, strangely, folded up into the seat like a broken toy. It stared at the stew with vacant eyes, then lifted them back up to Burnt Stick. She gripped her spoon tightly, knowing that if she gave herself permission to move or breathe, she would flee the house, leaving her poor mother in the monster's hands. Her mother gently suggested that the two of them eat. No need to wait for her, she nodded, as she returned to the kettle, stirring the fat. Burntstick didn't have an appetite. She was certain she was never going to eat again. But still, the Wendigo was staring at her, as if waiting for her cue. Burntstick took a deep breath, scooped up some stew, and placed it in her mouth. Her mother had outdone herself. The rabbit was tender, and the very small amount of root vegetables that they'd been able to forage were bright but soft. Burntstick was savoring it so much that she didn't see the Wendigo begin its feast. The Wendigo was devouring the stew. Its too long gangrened tongue lashed outwards, as if trying to pull everything inside its already stuffed maw at once. The beast slurped and gnashed, nearly breaking the bowl in half with his teeth. When it was all gone, it looked up at the two women again, the universal sign. More. The pit of Burnt Stick's stomach dropped again, but her mother was so serene. She nodded warmly to the Wendigo, picking up the now cracked bowl and bringing it to the fire. The creature stared at Burnt Stick hungrily, its lipless mouth opened wide, prepared to scream. Her mother placed the third bowl on the table, the last portion, her portion. The Wendigo dug in. Now, there was nothing to eat. Nothing. That was it. The stew was supposed to last them a week, but this monster would never be full. It would probably eat them after it consumed the rest of the stew. Her mother took the empty bowl from the creature and gave Burnt Stick a loving but firm look. Trust me. She returned to the fire, fussing with the kettle. Then she brought the bowl back and placed it in front of the Wendigo again. The creature sniffed at the bowl, considering. Then it snapped forward and began to eat. Burntstick finally realized her mother's plan. The creature began to cough and sputter, flaming hot grease dribbling out of its mouth and onto the table, sizzling as it came. But still, the creature ate. It didn't know how to do anything else, regardless of its temperature. Embers from the fireplace fell from its mouth as the Wendigo struggled to consume her mother's makeshift stew. Warm ash dissolved the frost on its misshapen cheeks. Slowly, 
thawed skin began to drip away with the hot grease as it slid to the cabin floor. The Wendigo was breaking down, ice and flesh melting as one. The throat fell away, then the ribcage, revealing a tiny luminescent heart frozen over mid-beat. Streams of water began to leak from the stony organ, somewhere between bleeding and crying. Burntstick could only look on in awe as the heart melted, and the rest of the body did too, leaving only a cold puddle of ice water where a monster used to be. The wide variation in Algonquian cultures means that each tribe and band of indigenous peoples have their own interpretation of the Wendigo, ranging from massive ice giants that hunted native peoples to the more common cannibalistic monster that has infiltrated American culture as a whole. But one of the most intriguing motifs in Legends of the Spirit is a kind of forerunner to modern horror film's Final Girl, the men in her village run in terror as she tricks, traps, kills, or heals the Wendigo, using items from her domestic experience, especially cooking. The Sweetgrass Cree tell the story of a young woman named Burnt Stick, who was forced to defeat several Wendigo to rescue her sisters and friends after her male counterparts are too frightened to help. Burnt Stick and other feminine heroes like her used cooking utensils, hot grease, and even their own menstrual blood to ward off or destroy the monsters. The trope of using cooking to defeat the Wendigo reflects the likely origin of the legend. The beast is a manifestation of the very real fear of starvation that could occur in the boreal forests thanks to the cyclical migration patterns of key game animals like deer. Telling Wendigo stories on cold, dark nights allowed people struggling with starvation to discuss the impulses their hunger was inspiring without carrying them out. The tales illustrated that these struggles could be overcome with the help of their community, as well as an adherence to shared values. In these traditional stories, the Wendigo is sometimes a monster to be defeated. In others, it is a visitor seeking shelter and comfort trying to fulfill a need it does not understand. It's a slightly different hunger, but a hunger all the same. But unlike greed or gluttony, this need for community can be satiated. What the Wendigo was and how it had to be defeated quickly began to morph and change as the Algonquian peoples began to interact with white invaders. Jesuit missionaries moving through the American boreal forest describe interactions with Wendigos in their journals, and the Canadian and American governors of these areas kept court records and reports surrounding Wendigo transformations. It's difficult to historicize these narratives in full. Many of the remaining historical records of the Algonquian were kept by their white occupiers. The inherent exploitation and erasure of indigenous identity within them is painfully clear but we can still track some limited truths. The first is that many missionaries and government officials respected the belief in the Wendigo. 
they'd remove people identified as Wendigos from their communities, often detaining them in convents or mental hospitals, supposedly at those same communities' request. While there are primary source documents that dismiss the Wendigo, the decision of outsiders to affirm the belief reflects the Wendigo's power within the Algonquian culture. The second trend to observe is the conception of what would later be called Wendigo psychosis. Described as a culture-bound syndrome, Wendigo psychosis would be diagnosed in an Algonquian patient exhibiting behaviors attributed to the Wendigo. An obsession with human flesh was the primary symptom. But the sufferer generally only needed to be identified as a Wendigo, either by themselves or by others, to be diagnosed and detained. As might be expected when it comes to white occupiers' interpretations of indigenous beliefs, the Wendigo psychosis diagnosis was easily weaponized against members of the Algonquian communities who challenged colonial authority. Several prominent medicine men and shamans who helped to treat and prevent Wendigo transformations were targeted for removal by Canadian authorities. These authorities used the belief that spending too much time with the Wendigos could begin the transformation itself. But as the Wendigo transitioned from native to non-native folklore, it became much more than a touchstone to discuss starvation or greed. It is a monster unto itself, as iconic as the werewolf or the vampire within American horror. And yet, the Algonquian method of defeating the Wendigo did not transfer over with the monster stories. In nearly every iteration of the Wendigo in modern media, the answer seems to be to kill it with fire. There is no community banding together to defeat a monster from within. Indigenous people themselves are often pushed to the edge of the narrative, if they appear at all. In the modern Algonquian community, the legend has changed too. Sources of the monster's hunger now include participation in consumerism and imperialism. To become a Wendigo is to reject one's obligation to the community in favor of short-sighted self-interest. It's important to clarify that it's the intentional choice to reject community responsibility that invites the spirit of the Wendigo, not a forced assimilation. This is a far more sinister take on the monster than the many campy, snow-covered creature features can offer. For the horror of the Wendigo comes not from its pale, stretched skin, gaunt features, or lipless mouth. The horror is in the victim's creeping transformation, the power of imperialism, and its accompanying scarcity to transform us into monsters. How many of us would know if ice had encased our hearts? How many of us would notice when we're so very hungry? Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back tomorrow with a new urban legend and on Thursday with a new haunted place. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite podcast originals, like Haunted Places, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. 
to stream Haunted Places on Spotify. Just open the app and type Haunted Places in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Until tomorrow, don't believe some of the things you hear. Believe all of them. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lil D. Ritter and Jennifer Richet. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>